Good morning. My name is Reverend Claire Carter, and I'm one of the clergy that serves here at Trinity. And I work mostly at our Faith Mission Campus in East Gainesville. And I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Marissa is away, and she asked me to fill in for her, and I said yes. And then I saw that I got the joy week. And I just want to tell you up front, I do not have 10 tips for a more joyful Christmas or how to live your best joyful life now. Um, that's all self-help, and we're not here in the self-help business. When we ask where does our help come from, we know it comes from the Lord, our God, maker of heaven and earth. And we know we can find wisdom about where to solve our problems and where to find our future in scripture. So before I preach this morning, let's hear these words that guide us today. They come from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And there's a little bit more here from 8 through 11. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. So I'll admit that uh, <clears throat> joy is not one of my personal strengths. I have more strengths concentrated in the area of eye rolls and sarcastic comments and what Paddington Bear calls a hard stare, but what my family just calls a Claire stare. So I, I knew I needed to find the sources of joy to preach about, to bring good news, and so I set myself down for a real serious talk, as joyful people do and try to remember what are these sources of joy in my life. And a memory came up from the depths of the dark days of the pandemic 
when we were all so tired and we were all so frustrated and we were all just looking for some good news, something that was going to distract us and take us away from the challenges we were facing and the realities that we were stuck with. And um, it brought me a lot of joy. And I went deep down that rabbit hole to hold on to that joy. And so far down that, um, to my husband's horror, now I can connect almost any two points or um, steer any topic of conversation or ruin any social interaction um, by bringing up the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. <laughs> and my question for you today is, have you heard about the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago? I know we have, uh, we have a fill-in in the booth right now, but I'm going to ask them if they can bring up a photo uh, so you can understand a little bit about how amazing this fair was. This fair had everything. These grounds here on the shores of Lake Michigan, uh, built on what was swamp that was reclaimed, uh, were designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. You might know his better work from Central Park in New York. And it was such a huge deal, this fair, that although it took two years to plan and it ran for just six months, it hosted 28 million guests. Now our neighbors to the south at the Magic Kingdom, they hosted 17 million guests in 2022, the whole year. 28 million people in six months in 1893. So every state built a pavilion to show off the riches of their state and what they could provide to the union and to the new world. And um, some of these were incredible. The, the next photo, oh, let me show you. This is a, a picture from the Court of Honor and the Fair. And you can see there is a 65-foot-tall gilded statue of the Republic. It is representing our nation, and she's holding Earth in her hands there. All right, and the next one is um, what it looks like with the fountains that were colored, that would light up at night, all right? And the next one. This is the California Pavilion, uh, which featured many things, including, I think, a million pounds of fresh citrus fruit that was given away to fairgoers every week. Uh, and on the roof of that, there was a, an outdoor patio where they had fountains of wine that you could taste to understand what, what California provided to the world. Um, and the next one. This is the silver lady from the state of Colorado. Colorado really, they were really upset at Grover Cleveland, who was the president who got to kick off the fair and they really wanted him to understand how much silver Colorado had to offer. So they made this gigantic lady out of silver and I paraded her around for a bit. All right, next one. Holland brought green energy to the 1893 fair with their windmills. All right, and, and we had countries from all over the world showcasing what they could offer the new century and the new world. The next one, Germany brought a medieval castle to demonstrate the depth of their culture and what they had grown their strength from. The next one, Japan. For the first time, Japan was open to Westerners and Westerners had never seen the art and the culture and the food of this nation. And their pavilion was on man-made islands in the middle of the swamps that um, really focused on highlighting the, the gentle and, and beautiful art of the culture. And you could reach them by boats that were electrically powered, battery-powered boats in 1893. It just, how does that work? Um, the fair is the reason we have so many other things, including um, the Pledge of Allegiance was created for this fair. 
It also inspired L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, and he based the Emerald City on his experiences at this fair. And it inspired Frank Lloyd Wright, who, who saw these designs in the Japan Pavilion and other Asian pavilions to create a new style of American architecture. And we can just imagine the stories that Elias Disney told Walt about his days of being a carpenter at the fair. There's actually a song that I guarantee you we all know. Everybody who's been to elementary school knows this song, and you know it because of its popularity from the 1893 World's Fair. I can't sing, so I'm not going to sing it for you. And the lyrics are not appropriate for church. But <laughs> if you go home this afternoon and you Google the snake charmer, you're going to realize not only do I know that song, but I have always known that song, and I'm not sure where I learned that song. But we all know it because of this fair. So let me have the next one. Um, this fair featured the largest building ever built in the Western Hemisphere. It was the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building, and there's enough iron in that building to have built the Brooklyn Bridge twice. This was all built just for six months of presentation. And the best part is, and this is the last photo, guys go down the wormhole with me, uh, that in a time when people did not have electricity in their homes, and very few towns had electricity downtown, this entire fairground was illuminated because Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla were trying to compete to show off the best technology of the future. The whole fairground was illuminated by electric light. And for the first time, people could see what the future would look like. And it shined through the lights at the fair. It's pretty incredible what it must have felt like to show up to that space with so many other people and to realize that we can imagine the future together. We can see it and we can start to believe that it's going to be for us and it's going to be there. Now that same message, and you can move on from that photo, thank you Sylvia, that same message is what is exactly preserved in our reading from Isaiah today. This is a message that is supposed to delight and inspire us that is supposed to provide for us our blueprint of the coming world. It's a message that God gave to the prophet Isaiah, and God told Isaiah to tell everybody about this good news. And it starts out, I mean, there, there's so much to it. I would encourage you to go and spend time with this poem and really just go through the layers of it. We're just gonna look at the top layer today. I would have had to spend less time showing you fair pictures if we were gonna do more layers, but we'll just do the top one, that's fine. So it starts with an announcement from Isaiah, who says, The spirit of Adonai Elohim, ruler God, told me to tell you the signs of God's new creation. Let me just ask you, have you heard about the signs of this new creation? Because this new creation had everything. It's pretty wild. I was talking with Steve, and we don't talk about it too much in the Methodist Church because we don't like to be a church focused on just getting you to heaven. But the new creation has good news for the poor. The coming world has wholeness for the brokenhearted. Our shared future has freedom for people in captivity. This new creation has light for everyone living in darkness. God has called me to announce a jubilee, a year of forgiveness, and a day of vengeance. One of those things isn't like the other. We will just we'll keep rolling, keep rolling. Uh, 
This new world has comfort for all who mourn. God will replace ashes with garland and an oil of gladness. I really love this imagery. It's a costume change to show you that we've really been transformed. So in this new world, God will give us a cloak of praise instead of a heavy spirit, and we get a new name. We will be called Oaks of Righteousness, planted by God. God is a well-known landscaper. We've heard of his other work in Eden. Oaks of Righteousness, firmly planted, blessing generations. This is the vision of our future. This is the message that God wants us to hold on to, to imagine how things are going to be for us. Now, it's very similar to what people saw, experienced, felt at the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. But there's one really major difference here. See, that fair, as beautiful as it was and as amazing as it must have been to experience, was really a facade. It wasn't grounded in reality because the buildings weren't made to last. They weren't built of marble. They were built of staff, which is white plaster over wood framing. They didn't even last through the Chicago winter. And the future it envisioned is not for everybody. People who worked on it day and night to build it for two years paid 10 cents a day couldn't even afford tickets to see the finished product. That vision of the future was only for those who could afford it. And the ideal of peace based on human progress and prosperity, that fell apart really quickly when the fair ended. And within the next few years, at the turn of the century, all of us were embroiled in one of the most brutal chapters of human history in World War I and World War II. All of these images of a better future were built on human progress and human ability. But the very good news for you, for me, for all of us is that Isaiah's vision of our future is not built on what we can do. It's built on what God can do. And it's built on God's righteousness. In fact, if you go and look at that phrase that we just skipped over because we didn't want to linger too long about the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance, it's really crucial for us to have a future where everyone belongs by having a year of favor and a day of vengeance. But it's not what you think it is. It's not what we think it means to put things right. You see, all the people who were experiencing poverty and oppression and broken hearts they weren't just born that way. Something happened. Something happened to them. And in order for them to get to a place where they can experience newness and wholeness, something has to change. God's vision of our future is based on God's righteous ability to be able to restore. The image of vengeance is not about destruction like we might imagine in an action movie. It is about restoration. When we go back to verse 3, we hear this clearly. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. God has the power to restore things, to make them whole again. And God has a process for doing this. It's outlined very clearly in verses 4 and 5. 
that God will, will go to people and anoint their heads with oil. God will pick them up and plant them in good soil and nurture them so that they can grow and they can be strong and provide not only for themselves a, a peace in God's righteousness, but also for others. They would grow to be oaks of righteousness, providing shelter and rest, even for other people who may never join us. This is the vision that Isaiah has, a vision that says that your past doesn't define you, and also that God is going to restore you, all of you. This is a message that the people in Isaiah's time desperately needed to hear. They were returning from exile in Babylon. They were returning with many fewer people than they had been exiled with. Not everybody was able to survive this process. They were returning to a ruined place to live. And they were wondering, how are we ever going to have a future again? There may be some of you who are also wondering, how are we ever going to have a future again because of things that are happening in your life or things that are happening in our world? This vision of joy is for you. Uh, I, I want to tell you that what inspired part of this sermon is that we've experienced loss in my family this year, and my kids are really trying to, to grapple with what it means to be humans who are mortal. And as I was tucking my youngest in one night, and you know, as a parent, your parenting battery just really starts to run out at bedtime. And she keeps asking these questions and asking these questions. And I said, you know, baby, I'm very sorry about it, but we're not here forever. And that's why we really need to cherish every moment that we get. And she's seven, and she said, you never told me I was supposed to be cherishing every moment. <laughs> The thing about the vision of joy here is that it's not about a surface layer level of happiness. It's not about what you experience at a day of the fair. It's realizing that you belong, that you belong in this story, in God's story, that God is not done with you. You are not forgotten. You're not discarded. You are not unimportant. You belong. And joy comes when you recognize your place in that story, and when you feel yourself rooted and connected both to the past and reaching into the future, that is where that joy comes from. I want to share with you um, a, a way that I experienced joy recently. Um, in the United Methodist Church, we've been through a season of loss as well. We have many churches and clergy who have disaffiliated, and for those of us who knew them and loved them, uh, that there's grief around that. We continue to love them but we're connected in a different way now. And all these conferences and churches are trying to figure out who are we gonna be now? Where are we gonna go? What is our future in this next chapter? And what that really means is a whole bunch of Zoom calls. And we'll be on these Zoom calls and talking and getting ideas and someone's discerning and someone's praying. That's what we have bishops for. And um, after one of these calls recently, a retired elder from Louisiana sent me an email. His name is Jack Odell, and Jack, if you knew him, you would just know what a wonderful person he is. Jack has shepherded so many youth 
to find faith in Christ. He has led confirmation so many times. And he has even moved some of those through confirmation into ordination. And some of the people that he has actively been a part of their ordination, they write the books that you read in your Sunday school classes. And they lead the missions that we support together. And they are charting the course for the next chapter of our church life. Jack has had such an impact on, on our United Methodist Church. And he emailed me and he wanted to tell me a story. This is the last one in my pocket. And he said, Claire, I want you to know that Trinity Gainesville has a special place in my journey, although I have never been there. In the mid-70s, Dr. Odine Martin was pastor there. He came several years in a row to First UMC Minden, which is a tiny town in Northeast Louisiana that you will have a hard time finding on a map. He came several years for preaching series. His sermons changed my life. I still know portions of them today. Trinity shared their pastor that helped me answer my call to ministry. And he signed it, and I love this, Reverend Jack O'Dell, and it's very, very bold, retired. He knows where he belongs. When I got that message, it gave me such a feeling of joy because it instantly reconnected where I was in the story. I didn't know that someone who had served on my board of ordained ministry and helped with my ordination process had in his youth been helped by a pastor of this church through that same process. And for me, that was clarification that joy is really this realization or recognition that in this big world, you belong somewhere and that you are not forgotten, that you matter. There's one more place that we can see this in scripture and it's so common to you that I don't have to read it. I know you'll be able to, to conjure up the memory of this on your own. It's that if we imagine the scene of the birth of Jesus, we imagine that first nativity scene and we know that everybody who has come to see Jesus is surrounding the major and, and, you know, it's just a glorious scene. We can see that. That's our first Christmas ever. Imagine it from a new perspective. Put yourself in the place of Jesus in the manger, looking up. All of those grown-ups who are there, not a one of them in the first Christmas was feeling holly or jolly. Mary was exhausted. She had just traveled and delivered her first child. Joseph was overwhelmed. He had been catapulted into parenthood. The shepherds, and we don't often mention this, and their sheep, they couldn't leave their sheep anywhere. So the shepherds and their sheep are way off course just to deliver a message. The kings who come from different religious traditions, so perhaps they have alienated their whole family and culture by coming to deliver this message and these gifts. Um, they come and they come late, and as they leave, they become refugees because they have upset the king ruling there. So now they put their lives at risk. All of these grown-ups are feeling anxious, tired, nervous. They're wondering what could possibly come next. How is this gonna work out? Where are we gonna go? And yet, from Jesus's perspective, looking from the manger, the light from that divine star 
shines through all of these great oaks of righteousness. All of these people who say, I don't have it figured out, but I am trying and I am trusting the one who's made heaven and earth to do something marvelous with this and to build a future for us. The first person to experience Christmas joy was Jesus because he knew he belonged because the light that shined through all of those folks assured him that he has a place. That is my hope for you, that you will know that we can find joy when we realize that the past does not define us, but we can also experience joy when we root ourselves in the wisdom of the God who made us and ultimately controls all of this creation when we grow in God's graces and when we provide and nurture, we provide rest and nurture for other people. But it is not all about what we do. It's that the light that grows God's righteous oaks is the same light that shines through the branches. It blesses all that it touches. And even if there are deep and dark shadows that remain, the light is not overcome by the darkness. Will you please join me in prayer? God, we give thanks that your light shines through joy. We pray especially for those who are in need of more joy this year, that they may know they belong to you, that you love them, that you have anointed them and planted them and you are proud of them. We pray that we may be transformed into your oaks of righteousness, providing blessings for generations, even those who do not want to be among us. God, we pray that the joy of the first Christmas, even among tired or scared adults, would be made known and real in this world today. Let your light shine through us, your church, in the name of Jesus. Amen.